rising to speak at this commencement, I feel a bit like the laborer who showed up at the vineyard in the final hour <laughs> to work alongside those who had borne the heat of the day. I thank you, Dean Kittredge, for this extraordinary and gracious invitation to be among you. And now, a part of you. But chiefly, I give thanks to God for you, for the leaders and faculty of this seminary, and especially today for those who have worked hard and well to complete the rigorous academic and formation requirements of the varied degree programs of the Seminary of the Southwest. Now, this is my first trip to Austin, but I know and serve alongside a good number of SSW alumni. And to a person, they speak of their education and formation here in superlative terms. And they attest to what I have now seen for myself, the spiritual power of human intention blessed by the grace and wisdom of God, and the gift of Christian community a community whose focus is clear, to create a holy space where people come to grow, stretch, test, and be tested. Those of you in the graduating class came here from many places and engaged in uh, different courses of study, but in the time you were here, you clearly shared a common purpose, to grow in the knowledge and love of God, and to become, in the words of your seminary's vision statement, Christian leaders called to participate in God's reconciling mission in the world, leaders who are faithful, imaginative, and skilled. I hope you feel the magnitude of what you've accomplished through your intentional and sustained efforts. First, to put yourself in this place of great potential, and then avail yourself of its many opportunities and blessings. It was Kierkegaard who famously said that life must be lived looking forward and understood looking backward, and I, I'm sure you've had time in the last days to look back to when the idea of pursuing this particular course of study first occurred to you? And how far today seemed to you then? And then to the moment when you knew that the doors were opening to make this possible and you had to walk through it. Surely you remember when you felt the burden of what you had taken on and the sacrifice required of you in ways you had not anticipated. I think you've learned something about what it means to take up your cross here because you've done it. And no doubt there were times when you wondered what on earth you had signed up for. But then, but then there were those other times Perhaps in class or in practicum, 
certainly in worship, are the kind of conversation you can only have with those pursuing their passions with the same commitments that, with which you are pursuing yours, those times, blessed moments when you knew that you were exactly where you needed to be and seemingly where God wanted you to be. Looking backward then, each step of the journey to this day has taught you some very important things about the content of your studies, certainly, but also about yourself. You have a much clearer sense now of what you care about and what you don't, what you're good at and where you struggle, where your heart sings and how it breaks. You have intentionally expanded your spiritual horizons, stretched your intellectual capabilities, and deepened your emotional sensitivities. You've learned more firmly now how God speaks to you when God calls you to consider new possibilities, what it feels like to step out of that boat and walk onto the water, and you know, you know what it feels like to follow the one who has called you by name. Moreover, through your studies and prayer, relationships, through your trials and accomplishments, disappointments and successes, you have grown larger inside yourself, which makes you more of the person God created you to be. And as a result, as a friend of mine likes to say, whenever we do something really brave, you have given God more to work with. You've given God more to work with through you and with you. You have more room in which others might find respite. You have more probing insight into the way things are and how they might change for the better. You have more compassion with which to love and more skill with which to be helpful in that love. And I suspect you also have a few scars, born of the sacrifice it took you to do what you've done, and because of the inevitable imperfection of human community, you've learned that even in a seminary, we can hurt one another. But those experiences, too, have and will continue to be a means of grace and ultimately channels through which God's mercy will flow through you to another. I have simply lost count of the times that I have drawn upon the very real wounds of my past, wounds that I would never have chosen nor would I wish on anyone else, but through them and the healing experienced because of them, I know in ways I would never have known without them, that God's, sufficient, God's grace is in fact sufficient and revealed in my weakness. I have learned that even sin can draw us closer to God and, in the words of the poet Marianne Moore, that our flaws are the most interesting part about us. So, that's all looking back. Looking ahead to the life before you now, while the contexts of your ministry will unfold as they will and in unpredictable ways, the patterns of God's way with you 
and your responding, your ways of responding, have been firmly established. For some, because of your age and life experience, the pattern was established before you came here, and it simply grew deeper through your time. For others who are younger or at an earlier stage of a conscious walk with Christ, this foundation has been laid that both he and you will build upon. And it is so important for you to know and to claim the particularities of that pattern and trust the foundation of your relationship with God in Christ, because that alone is your ballast among the swift and varied changes of life and vocation, which isn't to say there aren't surprises in your relationship with him, only that you've traveled far enough now on this path to know something about how he is with you and how you are with him. This is the gospel of your life. The gospel of your life. It sounds like something Frederick Beekner would say, and maybe he did. I um, don't know. I first um, remember hearing this phrase as attributed to Archbishop Oscar Romero of El Salvador. Romero, as you know, was assassinated in 1980 at the height of his country's brutal civil war because he stood with poor farmers, university students, and church leaders as they were being slaughtered by their nation's leaders in the name of anti-communism. I've never been able to locate the quote, but it's utterly consistent with how he lived and taught. Speaking to the priests under his charge, he reportedly said, your life may be the only gospel that your people will ever know. I'm fairly certain that what he meant by that is that when working among subsistence farmers, many of them who were illiterate, that his priests needed not only to teach and to preach the message of Jesus, they, they had to live it. They had to live the gospel for themselves in such a way that those who might never be able to read a word about Jesus would understand and see. St. Paul said something similar in his letter to the Philippians, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live in such a way that people who know who Jesus is, surely that is the charge of, for all Christians everywhere, but especially for those called into relationships of counsel and of leadership. What I know about living the gospel, however, is it's as much a revelation to me as it is to those around me. And I don't mean this abstractly, but in the most concrete terms. Because sometimes, from time to time, and I'm sure this has happened to you, a, a gospel passage or a teaching moves from something I've read or heard or even preached about and becomes something else entirely. It actually takes up residence inside me, and it becomes a lens through which I see and understand my life and through which I experience God. It becomes the gospel of my life. And these are the conscious 
vivid experiences in the life of a Christian, all Christians. Some, some are dramatic, most are embedded in the ordinary events of life, but they have the power to change everything. Not so much as the external rearranging of life circumstances, at least not at first, but more consistently with how Jesus lived and taught, it's this internal shaking up of things, giving us new eyes and ears with which to see and hear everything that's all around us. I'll give you just the, the foundational gospel of my life um, is the miracle of the loaves and the fish. Um, it was very early in my ordained ministry when I was feeling the most um, overwhelmed and inadequate that I had one of these life-changing experiences. I had accepted an invitation to serve on an advisory board of a community free meals program, and I immediately regretted it because I had so little time and energy to devote to it. And on more than one occasion, I almost quit, but I didn't. I dutifully showed up at the meetings and did very little else for the entirety of my term. And for my last scheduled meeting, I had prepared this little speech, which was essentially an apology for not doing more for the ministry during my term. But before I could deliver it, the head of the board rose and she lavishly praised me for my contributions and mentioned specifically several times in our group conversations during which I had offered just the right direction or insight that was needed. Now, I have to tell you, her praise did not change my assessment of my lackluster board. I knew, I knew that I was barely there. But what I learned for myself um, became and has become the foundation of my life in Christ. Um, and that is simply when we offer what we have, even when we know it is insufficient. You remember what the disciples said, how can we feed so many with so little, right? When we do that, God can take it, what we offer, and do what God does, which is to create miracles of abundance. And over time, I have become less afraid to offer my inadequate offerings because I'm so consistently reminded of what I learned that first time, that sometimes God seems to want me or even need me to offer what I have to give so that through that gift, something else can happen. Now, it doesn't get me off the hook for striving to offer my best, but it does allow me to trust and live in and lead from an economy of grace. It is the gospel of my life. And if it's part of your life, too, you can trust it. You can live in it. You can lead from it. Given the nature of transitions that Dean Kittred spoke to us about last night, I suspect, I suspect we all know something about what it feels like to walk on water. Jesus calls us from the relative security of whatever boat we happen to be in 
And he calls us by name to the very place where we cannot stand on our own. And in our own euphoric mix of joy and fear, we step out and immediately begin to sink. Right? And then he takes our hand and he holds us up and we walk together to solid ground. Now, the particularities of what walking water feels like to you are crucial. And again, something to reflect upon as you look back on this major undertaking you've just completed. What was stepping out on the boat like for you? How did you hear his name? Because it's not the same for everyone. And we're not always called out of every boat we're in, you know? Have you thought about that? Sometimes our role is to steer while somebody else gets called out on the water. And how do you typically respond to such calls? Are you the kind of person who loves new adventures and are thus inclined to jump right in and possibly too soon? Or are you the type that likes to hold back and see, watch someone else test the water first? Which is to say, how well do you know yourself? and what it feels like inside you when Jesus calls you. And that is important to identify and to name that pattern for yourself and to claim it. Because if there's anything certain about what lies ahead is that he will call you out on the water again, but not out of every boat, not all the time. And that is important to discern what the clues are in yourself so that you know as best as you can, that this is it. In a similar way, echoing Jesus' words from the gospel, accepting the crosses that belong to us, very important to know what your crosses are, but not every cross belongs to you. A woman addressed my seminary class nearly 30 years ago, and she changed my life with this compelling distinction between false crosses and real ones. They're difficult to distinguish, actually, because with both of them, the suffering is real. But with a a false cross, the suffering is an end to itself. It goes nowhere. Whereas with a real one, your cross, the one that you are called to take up, there is the possibility of redemption and new life. And sometimes we're tempted to choose a false cross as a means of avoiding the real one that belongs to us. I don't know what your crosses entail, but I, I know something of mine. I know what it feels like to take up a cross I did not choose. And I pray for you the strength and the wisdom and the courage to do the same because that cruciform pattern in you will be the foundation of the authenticity of your ministry. And the serenity prayer is especially helpful here. Remember? Give me the serenity, Lord, to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. My fellow Christian leaders, you are called now to take your place In God's reconciling mission in the world, you have been equipped with faithfulness, imagination, and great skill. I thank you for taking on the mantle of this call, for submitting yourself to this process and completing it, 
for having greater clarity of the vineyards to which you have been called to serve. Simply, simply do this. Trust the ways that Christ speaks to you. Know your particularities of relationship with him and live from that truth. Your life may be the only gospel people around you may ever know. So go from this place and live well the gospel of your lives. Amen.